morning, I want to start with a premise and a story. A premise and a story. The premise is this. Everything is scarier in the dark, okay? One of the most terrifying experiences in my entire life happened because everything is scarier in the dark. It was uh, years ago when we were in the partnership that we had uh, in Mafumia, in uh, Kayanza province, in a country called Burundi. And for eight years, we helped work with this community. We learned lots from them. We got to contribute a lot as well as we helped the community go from stuck to thriving. And it was one day after our work out in the community that we came back to the hallway that was outside of the rooms that we stayed in and we found these. It's coming. I believe it. There it is. That is a tarantula hawk. You can tell it's very distinct, all black with rust-colored wings. And these are the most terrifying insects I have ever seen in my entire life. Now, we came back to our room, these uh, nightmare inducers, they were hanging around outside. What they do is they sting their prey, they paralyze it, they then drag the prey back to their brood, okay? What's even crazier is that they will then lay an egg in this creature that they have stunned, and then the egg hatches, and then it proceeds to eat the prey from the inside. I'm very sorry to tell you about this this morning. <laughs> You should see the coloring sheet your kids are doing. <laughs> horrifying. Uh, these things grow huge. Look at this next picture. Uh, they grow to about nine centimeters, three and a half inches long. Yeah, these are not small creatures. So we get back to the hallway and there's about six to ten of these crawling around on the floor. Now, for some reason, they were a little bit sleepy. I'm not entirely sure what was happening about their kind of day-night cycle, but they were sleepy. They were, they were kind of just walking around there. So we had this little meeting as a team to say, well, what are we going to do about this? And we came with the very logical decision that we will dispose of them before they dispose of us. And then we each took a turn going into our rooms to make sure that none of these had gotten in there while we were away for the day. We all go in, everything looks good, and all we, uh, we all head off to bed. Now, uh, going to bed in this part of the world, for us, uh, included all the stuff you normally do when you go to bed, but then it also included one additional step, which is once you got into bed, you then were to tuck in your mosquito net all the way around the outside of your mattress. That was just part of the journey. So I'm all bundled up, everything's good, I start dozing off, and it's about 45 minutes later, the silence of the night was broken when one of our team members named Grant starts screaming at the top of his lungs. Now, I don't know if you have ever woken up to someone screaming at the top of their lungs. It's horrible. It has got to be the worst way to wake up. At any given time, this is a terrible way for you to wake. If, you know, you, you have people in the house, like you should try it tonight and see. <laughs> How that goes over. It's terrible, right? But here's the, here's the added issue here. When you're on the other side of the planet, okay, and you are in a politically unstable part of the world, and you're staying in a place with armed guards and razor wire, the last thing you want to hear is someone on your team screaming into the pitch black of night. So we did what any good you know, teammates would do. We yelled back from our rooms, Grant, are you okay? And it still makes me laugh all these years later. Grant yells back. He goes, it got inside. He's trying to get me through my net. <laughs> and one of these babies was trying to come through the mosquito net. Now, the mosquito net is meant for little tiny itty bitty mosquitoes, not a long john with wings, okay? And so as this thing's trying to come through, 
Grant has a whole, mo- uh, a whole situation. Now, Grant made a critical error. I'm going to give you two free tips this morning that was worth coming to church just for these two trip, uh, tips because this is a travel hack. Travel hack. When you go somewhere, when you go far away, put a roll of duct tape in your bag. Here's why you put a roll of duct tape in your bag. Reason number one, your bag gets broken. I've had my bag broken so many times. You get a tear in it, the zipper's broken, whatever it is, you take duct tape, you work that thing around, and guess what? Your stuff's not gonna end up all over the conveyor belt when you're coming home. That's a good tip in of itself, but tip number two is even better. When you go to parts of the world with lots of creepy crawlies, you will find the doors do not seal very well. So what you do is you take your duct tape, you make a strip like this, you tape the bottom of the door, to the floor, and no unwanted visitors come to you in the night. Wow, look at all the things that you're learning at church this morning. You do this with people that think you're such an expert, and then you can give everyone. Grant made a rookie error. He did not create the safety barrier on his door, and so he got a visitor. And then we all learned that everything is scarier in the dark. We laugh about that still today. And you know this. You could tell me a story about being at night or in the dark and be scared because ordinary, everyday tasks, they become behemoth feats of courage when you do them at night, right? You walk around this afternoon, no problem, everything's good. You do that same walk in your neighborhood, right? And you're walking around at 11.30 and you got your keys out like this and you're, you're ready for any would-be attackers. You're pretending like you're on the cell phone. I'm almost there. There's eight huge people around the corner, right? You know you've done this. I've seen you. You're not talking to anybody, right? <laughs> Things are scarier at night. Things are scary at night. You know this to be true and it's more complicated than this. Because as you actually stop and you consider your life and you consider the world and you look at the news and you, and you look at your own life and you look at friends and family, you, you hear the stories of people right here in our own church and you can't help but draw the conclusion, it seems a little dark out. It seems like there's a lot of chaos in our world. And you're not quite sure what to do. And you're trying not to be, but, but you're a little afraid. You're a little concerned, you're a little anxious. As you might be here thinking, I'm in a bit of a season of darkness right now. And if that's you, I just want you to know that you're not alone. And I believe that the scriptures have great hope for us today. Because darkness isn't a new idea. This is not a theme that just all of a sudden we are experiencing living with. It's a theme that you would discover all throughout the scriptures if you were to read through it. And especially if you were looking for it. Now, darkness in the Bible, it can mean a number of different things. It can mean spiritual blindness. This unawareness of God's presence and his movement. And so sometimes that's referred to as darkness. But it also comes to mean all of the things that scare us. Pain, sorrow, sickness, death. All of these things sort of have this connotation of darkness. But then you'll also see when darkness is talked about, often there's light that's talked about as well. And light in the Bible, it it comes to become all the things that we find reassuring in our lives. It can mean God's presence, the advancement of his kingdom, its truth, its righteousness, its safety. It even becomes to be known as life itself. So as we continue in this new series that we're in, I Am, we're going to look at this statement of Jesus that steps directly into this theme. We find it in John chapter 8. So here's the key verse that really everything I'm going to talk about this, this morning revolves around this statement. Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. 
Now, I'm convinced for us this morning that that statement, just as it is, if you didn't know anything else and you just read that statement, that it's a powerful statement and it resonates with us. You could be reading this in your devotionals, come across that line and go, yeah, like that, that means something to me this morning. But I don't think we really can grasp the magnitude of what Jesus says here without two major pieces of understanding. And that's what we're going to tackle this morning, is is kind of finding these two major sources of information that help us understand this statement. Because we lack two things. First, we lack the history of the theme of light and dark that precedes Jesus' life on earth. So when Jesus makes this statement, there's a whole history at play that that we don't have. And so we're going to talk about that. But we also lack the idea of, of where Jesus says this in the context of of what's going on as he makes this statement. So those are the two things we're going to look at this morning. And if we can fill in those two pieces of information, then I think you'll come to the same place I have, which is to view this verse and this statement and absolutely fall in love with it because it is so amazing and powerful. So let's start with the historical significance of this idea of light and dark. And to do this, we're going to go back. We go way, way back. all the way back to the first opening lines in the Bible. It's there you find these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and darkness night. And evening passed and morning came, marking the first day. Come back to this text often, right? Our shared story of creation. And we see there that this concept of light and dark are presented almost immediately to us. We're told the earth is formless. There's this sense of chaos and and darkness that was present. What I want to highlight here is this. God is present, God is present in the midst of darkness and chaos and formlessness. He's there, but he's not yet acted. But something fundamentally changes in God doing what God does in creating the light. Darkness, which which seems to be the prevailing reality of this current form of existence, this, this formless void, now suddenly that darkness becomes subordinate to light. That wherever light is, darkness cannot be. So you take this idea and and you then kind of begin to to play with the thought of this oscillating nature, this interplay between dark and night. And and as you think about this, uh, this this light and, and dark cycle, as this plays back and forth, time, as you and I conceptually think about it, is created. Our days are counted and divided by the relationship of a day night cycle. Now, we know today, we understand today that that a solar day takes almost 24 hours, and, and the earth t- rotates on its axis at the same time. It's, it's orbiting the sun. We understand all of this, and it's fascinating. But none of our modern understanding of, of this undoes what is clearly described for us here at the outset of Genesis. That in the darkness, the chaos, the formlessness, the void, God moves and creates light. And with light be comes order because because you need to have light for everything else that becomes created. You know this, light sustains life on earth. Plants, animals, people, everything that's going to follow this first act of creation is dependent on there being light in the darkness. 
Now, I'm not going to talk a lot here about the origins of the writing uh, of Genesis itself, but I do just want to make a little nod here for those of you that are, that are really into this kind of stuff. For the first 1,800 years after the birth of Christ, there's virtually no discussion about where Genesis came from, who wrote it. It was attributed to Moses, no discussion. Over the last couple hundred years, there's a number of different theories at play on how this all gets formed, the idea of an oral tradition, which is then recorded a number of different sources, and you can go deep down this. The point I want to make is this. Regardless of where you date the, the creation of Genesis and, and the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books, it was created for a reason. It was created for people. And when it's formed, regardless of your view, whether it's from 2,000 years ago or 200 years ago, it was created at a time where the people needed to be able to hold the scriptures, to engage the word of God. People who lived in this life and experienced darkness and chaos and void and chaotic situations. And so what happens is, is when the people were struggling, when they were hurting, when they were lost, when they were in captivity, they would be able to tell each other this same story. Remember at the beginning of it all, when there was chaos and darkness and formlessness, God broke through. Light wins in this moment. And they were able to hold on to this idea as this hope that would come for the future. And this idea really does become the basis of hope throughout the Old Testament. Now, time's not going to let me show you a lot of places along here, but we're going to make one really important stop, okay? We're going to talk about uh, what Isaiah writes about. Um, he talks about this very same theme, and let me just give you a little context for his point in history. Uh, when Isaiah's writing to the people of God, they've been uh, attacked uh, invaded by the Assyrians. Now, the Assyrians are this uh, really powerful, wicked nation. They've become famous, actually, for the way that they would torture and humiliate their enemies. If you were to look this up, I don't recommend that you do, but if you were to look this up, you would see these horrible stories. And so when the Assyrians were invading your ter uh, territory, it was terrifying. You would absolutely be on edge. And these raids that came from Assyria, particularly in 734 and 732 BC, it's left God's people just struggling, experiencing this real sense of darkness and dread. They were physically suffering in so many ways, so many ways. But on top of this, they again abandoned their God. If you were with us when we walked through the Minor Prophets, you know over and over again we saw that the people of Israel often turned to idolatry. This seems to be the same case here. So not only are the people in Isaiah's day suffering physically, but they're living in a sense of spiritual darkness as well. And it's in the middle of all of this that we find these words from Isaiah chapter 9. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulon and Naphtali will be humbled. But there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Do you see this again? The same theme, the same idea, chaos, darkness, despair, yet all of that will be subservient to the light. The light that will break through will provide a reprieve for those who have been living in darkness. So Isaiah references this whole idea, but, but then he develops it even further. Just a few verses later, we read this, and you might uh, recognize this as a Christmas classic text. Here it is. 
For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. So Isaiah doesn't just pull this theme forward in time, this connection between light and dark. He doesn't even talk about it just as a natural force or, or even just the idea of it being the presence of God, as, as that was probably what it was largely understood to mean at this point in history. Isaiah says this light that brings freedom, it's going to come in the form of a child. That light isn't just some sort of power, but it's actually a person. And Isaiah says, look, all the suffering you're experiencing, it won't always be like this. There will be a dawning. This, again, reference to the light. Now, we're almost back to that first verse I showed you, the I am statement of Jesus. But I want to make one quick additional stop that helps us connect all these dots. And that's right at the start of John's gospel itself. Because it's right there that we see specifically this theme of light and dark presented. John's gospel is an incredibly uh, powerful one, and it has this really recognizable opening. It sets up the significance of Jesus, and, and it's become one of the most famous openings of any of the books of the Bible. It reads this way. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Okay, I know I'm coming at you with this, but you see it here again. Like, this is the understanding that the people at this time, when Jesus is walking on this earth, that they would have understood about all of this. Darkness, subordinate to light, the living word being Christ himself brings light to everyone, a light that can never be extinguished. And John chooses to introduce his whole gospel, his whole story of Jesus with this illusion that builds on Isaiah's description of the child. The child has grown. He is the Christ. Jesus is here. And so we're meant to have all these connections in mind as we come to this statement of Jesus where he says, I am the light of the world. It's the same text. Jesus spoke to the people once more, said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you'll have the light that leads to life. Now, I told you we needed two pieces of information. What we've just covered is sort of the history that, that the people would have been living with at this time that brought to this moment. But we also need to talk about what's going on here as Jesus says this, because this is the other really, really cool part of this story. Now, here's our clue that something's going on, right? Uh, when you read a line like this, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, like, there's something else going on. There's something that we've kind of just dropped into here. So let me set that up for you. It's earlier in chapter 7 that we see Jesus attends the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, this happened in Jerusalem, and it was an annual reminder to mark the 40 years of wandering that God's people endured. And there's three basic ideas that were celebrated at this feast, okay? The first is that it was a recognition that God intervened and moved and set the people free from their slavery in Egypt. 
So again, watch for this concept, right? When there was oppression and darkness and chaos in the people of Israel, God moved forward and set them free. This is the first thing that they would recognize in this celebration. The second is that it was a reminder of how God fed his people. That as they wandered, this pouring out of manna that sustained them. And Greg talked about this last weekend, if you were here, this bread of life. But, but God provides for his people in a very real way to sustain them. And then the third part that this, this festival reminds the people was how God draws near to them. And they would do this by telling the story of as they went through the desert, if you know this story, during the day they were led by a pillar of cloud. But then here's our theme again. At nighttime they followed a pillar of fire, this light that shines in the darkness for them. So you see how all these ideas are woven together here. Now there's one other biblical story that's connected to this specific festival, and it, it comes from the time of the dedication of the temple. Now this is much earlier, and sort of Jesus is at the temple, but it's rebuilt. All these kind of things are going on. But, but we see this in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. So if this is interesting to you, you can go read more about it there. But King Solomon dedicates the temple. And during this very feast, fire flashes down and the presence of the Lord fills the temple. This is a remarkable story. Again, you can read it on your own. But, but Joe Amaral, he writes about this in his book, Understanding Jesus. He says, Jewish tradition says the fire actually lit the altar and the candles in the Holy of Holies. This is the most center part of the temple where, where God was thought to reside at this point in history. He goes on to say, ancient Jewish literature records for us another custom that developed over time that was practiced at the time of Christ, okay, during this feast, this feast of tabernacles. And it was called the illumination of the temple ceremony. There was these four really large menorahs or, or candelabra that were uh, kind of put way up into the air in the temple. Now, there's a bunch of different documents around this. Some say that it's, you know, even as much as 70 feet in the air that these things were kind of placed. You know, they had to have these ladders to go up and light these things. And during each feast, these menorahs were then lit in a part of the temple known as the woman's court. And it was said that they cast so much light, they were so bright, that it illuminated every courtyard in Jerusalem. So just imagine living at that time. You have this ceremony that would happen. Here's the temple. These lights are suspended so high in the air that they cast light. It cascades down to where everybody lives. And you could actually see in your own kind of yard there at night because of how bright these lights were. Now remember... There's no electricity, there's no power, there's no spotlights. I don't know if you know this, but when it's dark out, like it's really dark out. <laughs> Most of us don't experience that, but this is how people lived. And so when this festival is going on and these lights are shining, it's just this, everybody sees it, everybody recognizes it. This is a really big deal. And it's in this moment, as these lights are lit, that Jesus walks into the scene underneath these, this, this very ceremony that's remembering the glory of God filling the temple, the ceremony that's trying to, to anticipate the return of when God would fill the temple again. And here's Jesus. He steps in on this very day. And he says, I am the light of the world. Now, it's really interesting. Uh, people would talk about this because of how significant it was, the lighting, you know, pouring out. They, they would call it the light of Jerusalem because so much of the city would be lit by this experience. But when Jesus comes in and he stands there, he doesn't say, I am the light of Jerusalem. He says, I'm the light of the world. Everybody is welcome. 
the forgotten, the outsider, the poor, the Gentile, all of this, all of these groups of people would be included in the way that Jesus would lead. His mere presence fulfills this desire that God would be present in the temple once more. And Jesus does so in the flesh. Everything that I've been talking to you about for the last 20 minutes is trying to help you understand all the context, all the history, all the anticipation that's, that's baked into this idea of light and dark. And then we have this moment where Jesus steps into all of it and says, I am the light of the world. This statement is spectacular. But the response to it was less so. If you were to continue to read from here, you'll quickly discover that those who are present at the festival, most of them don't react so well. The Pharisees dispute Jesus' claim. Later, people would come to misunderstand what Jesus is teaching. Some did believe. The text says that there are some who, who came to, to believe in Jesus at this time. But there were also others that was convinced uh, that he was possessed by a demon. So it wasn't going perfectly. And if you read right to the end of the chapter, you actually find that, that many people start picking up stones to throw at Jesus. What a happy ending to the I am statement of Jesus for this weekend. But this is the moment that I wanted us to come to because I think for, for us today, we need to pause and think about the implications of this I am statement in our own lives. Because in many ways, you and I are in the same spot as those who would have first heard these words of Jesus. We're presented with the very same choice. That if Jesus says he is the light of the world, then our options are to acknowledge this truth, to live life according to it, or to deny it. To try to explain it away, perhaps even to become hostile towards it. But to accept this truth means that it's Jesus who gives us our purpose. That by his light we see everything else. That the chaos and darkness in our lives become subservient to that of Jesus' work in our lives. That the light that Jesus gives helps us understand, it gives us order, it allows us to see the world in a particular type of way. Because when the light is present, you see what's going on. There's a path forward. But in darkness, we fumble. We're lost. We're not sure where we are. But it's in Jesus we're shown how to live, how to treat others, how to love God and love neighbor, how to use our finances, how to invest our time. We understand how to interact with the world around us because we see it in light of Christ. Because Jesus taught on all these things. And guess what? He doesn't just say, I am the light of the world. He says, you're the light of the world. Right near the start of Jesus' most famous section of teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. You are the light of the world. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So here it is. Having the light is amazing. <laughs> Being able to find order and peace that comes from walking with Christ is, in my opinion, the very best way to live. 
It allows us to see clearly because everything is scarier in the dark. Look, when I had to deal with tarantula hawks, I want to do so with the lights on. I don't want to deal with that in the dark. And make no mistake, you will face some very troubling times in your life. I don't wish it upon you. We just know this to be true. And so when you face those things, do you want to do so bumbling around in the dark where you can't understand and see how this all works? Or do you want to see it head on, face to face, the challenges in your life because you understand that there is temporary suffering in this life? You can do so because you have the light. You can see more clearly and face the difficulty of this life. But we're not meant to just enjoy this ourselves. We are meant to be light bearers. We're to be the people who go out into the community whose light shine that others would come to know and see more clearly. God places us in positions to shine. He does not call you and save you and redeem you and light your little light and then put the cap on top. You have the light because you are meant to stand and be placed into positions where that light benefits everyone around you. That's how this is supposed to work. You get it, you enjoy it, you love it, but you let it shine. That's the purpose. That's what Jesus calls his followers towards. And as we do this, as we engage in these places, people around us begin to see more clearly. They begin to understand there's another way to live. That we're not people who are are free from, from darkness and from difficulty and from suffering in this life, but we have a different approach to it. We understand how to see it, how to work through it, how to support one one another as we engage with it. And this becomes so impactful in people's life that just as Jesus says, it's going to cause everyone around you to praise God for your presence. So this is the question as we go into our week. Is this how you take your everyday ordinary life? Do you consider that all the places and spaces you go, they're your mission field. They're your opportunity to let the light shine that Jesus has given to you. And is this true of you? Is this true of me? When I walk into a room, is it brighter because I'm there or does it somehow get darker? What would it look like if we actually took this really, really seriously to not just hoard the light, to not put kind of the cap on top of it, but to actually let it shine. So here's how I'd like us to close. Over the next few moments, the team's going to lead us in in one song. And I'm going to propose just a very simple next step action for you. There are some of you, maybe you're here, you're watching online, and, and you have not yet accepted Jesus as the light of your world. Yeah, maybe Jesus is the light to somebody's world. Maybe he's out there somewhere, but, but it's not for me, right? Look, today's as good a day as any to let Jesus have this place, this rightful place in your life. And if that's you, during this next song, I'm going to ask you to just, if you're willing, you make this sort of decision, is just to stand up where you are. Now, don't worry. There's going to be lots of us standing, okay? So don't let that part freak you out. But today could be the day where something very significant happens in your life, where you accept Jesus as the light of the world for you. And there's a whole bunch of us in this room who we've been walking with Jesus for some time. But if you're at all like me, and I've been walking with Jesus for a long time, there's seasons in my life where I live that out better than others. And over these next few moments, I just want you to rate where you are, prayerfully consider, like, am I really living this out? 
Am I being the light in all the places that I go, or am I content to just sit in the light here on a Sunday morning? Like, this is the question. And if you're sitting where you are in these next few moments and you think, yeah, you know, I can take another step on this. I'm gonna re-up a little bit. I'm gonna be a little more intentional in how I live. Then I'd like you to stand also. And here's the deal. If you're watching online, you take a step that makes sense. It might be super awkward for you to stand. Like maybe you're driving your car. Probably don't stand. Say amen, raise your arm, do something that's appropriate. Don't crash, okay? But there's one more group of people I want to talk to that might be here. And that's those of you that are like, I'm just not there yet. Like, I want to believe, but, but, but I can't. I'm not, I'm not quite there. And I want you to know that that's okay. That you're welcome in this place. You can be here. We're going to journey this through with you. Feel no shame, no judgment to stay seated in a moment like this. And there are others of you that are here and you're thinking, man, I've got this, this light of the world. I've got Jesus, but my little light is flickering. Like it's barely holding on right now. I can't imagine shining brighter. I'm just trying to keep the light I have. And that's okay too. Stay seated. Let the people around you just, just like, we're going to notice. It's okay. People around you are going to just throw some prayers your way. Look, when we live in community like this, we don't all have 10 out of 10 days, okay? Some days are really good and some days really suck, and that's okay, and that's part of journeying together. But what I do hope is an encouragement for you this morning is that as you sit there, as you, as you struggle to hold on to the light, is that you see a bunch of other brothers and sisters in Christ who are making that choice to say, you know what, I could do this better. I could be more faithful. I can express my love to Christ in a deeper way and the ones around you that are standing. And that in itself might just help your little flickering light hold on and strengthen a little brighter. So these next few moments are yours. Consider them prayerfully, use them well, and then respond as you see fit.